Working, yep, sounds good. So if I stand up here, does that mean you won't see the screen or is that okay? Just because I want to be beside my notes. So, so lovely to be here. Um, that description of my job sounded very grand. <laughs> Hopefully it'll seem a little bit simpler after I've uh, talked a little bit this morning. Um, I have known Michelle, Michelle Scott for about six or seven years, I think. Um, and she's only now invited me to come and share. So I don't know what that says. And she's not even here. So um, I don't know what that, you know, hints. But anyway, hopefully it'll go okay this morning. Um, and Ashley and I have a very uh, sophisticated system where I'm going to wink every time I want the slide changed. Um, so can we change the slide? <laughs> um, that would be great. So I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. Um, so the top left, as you're looking at it, is me and my son and my husband. Um, Nathaniel just turned four last week. So depending on what you want him to do, he's either a big four, I can do that, or a small four. Oh, I can't do that, I'm a small four. Um, maybe you have experienced the same sort of thing. Um, and yes, we did get a, a greyhound. Wouldn't have been my first choice, but um, about six months ago, and actually Rocky's great. They're very lazy animals. They just, he just wants to sleep all day. And then on the right-hand side um, are various pictures of my church community, which is called Collective. And we're based on a home church model. So I go to home church, which sounds a little bit like your community groups um, every week. Um, and then the home churches meet together every other Sunday. Um, and so the focus is really on what happens in those home churches. And um, so that's various pictures of them. And then the bottom left, um, as you're looking at it, is uh, well, I went to, had the privilege of going to the Philippines back in 2013 now with International Justice Mission, just to take a group of people there to learn a little bit more about the work that we do. Um, and I ended up, we look all a little bit hot and sweaty in this picture, but um, there, in the Philippines, we work on the issue of sexual exploitation of, of young girls. And, and so this was a group of girls who had been rescued out of that life several years before and they'd been counselled and kind of brought back into um, life in community. But IJM liked to keep in touch with them and so every so often they would have a programme and this was called Fit and Fab, I think. And so we had to um, do some Zumba and play some volleyball in this like awful heat. It was awful. And so that's why we're looking so sweaty and red-faced. Um, and then they did a little bit about spiritual fitness. So they'd done the kind of physical fitness, spiritual fitness. And then they had burgers and chips from a fast food restaurant. So I thought that was interesting in this fit and fab program. But that's just a little insight into uh, the work of IJM and some of what I've been able to do over the years. And um, I'm interested in who's heard of IJM before, International Justice Mission. And so who hasn't? So this is a really exciting morning for all of you then, where you get to learn about us for the first time. Your life's about to be changed, guys. Uh, well, and probably not, but hopefully you'll find it really interesting. So um, IJM is about 22 years old. We're the world's largest anti-slavery organization. I imagine you have heard the terms modern slavery and human trafficking quite a lot, actually, in recent times. Um, it's more and more in our thinking. It's in our media. And we see it all over social media as well. So I know you'll be really familiar. Um, and you probably know as well that the latest statistics are that there are over 40 million people around the world who are enslaved in some way, whether that's um, in bonded labour or sexual exploitation or domestic servitude, there are different forms. Um, but IJM was set up in the 1990s by a man called Gary Haugen. Gary uh, 
is a Christian and he um, is a lawyer and he had gone to Rwanda after the genocide. He'd been asked to go there on behalf of the UN to put together a report on what had happened. Um, I imagine for some of you, you remember, you know, seeing the images and the footage from Rwanda and how awful it was even to watch on TV. And he went there and he was going through mass graves, interviewing survivors. And as you can imagine, that was pretty challenging, pretty horrific. And he'd had some other experiences um, in places where there was a lot of violence. Um, and so he thought, as a lawyer, there's got to be something that we can do about this. But also as a Christian, he believed, well, if God is a God of justice and compassion, what is our response to this? And he knew that he did a, did a survey looking at different organizations, particularly Christian organizations and missionaries around the world, looking at um, asking them, whenever you see or do you see issues of violence and exploitation in the communities where you work? And when you see it, do you know what to do? And of course, the answer was, yes, we see these things all the time. And overwhelmingly, we really don't know what to do. And the Christian church had become much better at thinking about um, tackling poverty um, and, and obviously spreading the gospel, the good news of Christ. But we hadn't really thought about this idea of violence. What do we do whenever the powerful person is abusing their power over someone else, someone who's really vulnerable? How do we intervene and how do we bring justice in that situation? So that's really why IJM was started. Um, today is a special day for International Justice Mission around the world. We have what we call Freedom Sunday, where we ask churches all over to highlight issues of injustice to think about what the Bible has to say about justice and to pray uh, for the end of slavery. And so you're joining together actually with over 14,000 churches around the world and 110 churches in the UK and Ireland, which is hopefully about 11,000 people across the UK and Ireland who'll be thinking about this this morning. And um, Michelle, whenever she asked me to come and share, she wanted me to speak about um, biblical justice uh, to help us understand what the Bible has to say and how that looks or how that can look in our lives and in the life of our church. And I feel a little bit like um, teaching my granny to suck eggs. Is that the right expression? Because I've never used it before. So <laughs> I'm hoping it's right. But I think that you guys are really committed already to um, practically helping people in need and showing God's love in practical ways through your compassion project, through the things I've heard about in India and different things. Um, and so hopefully this won't be this will be encouraging as you think about the, what the Bible has to say about that. And also as you think about the difference between charity and justice, um, because I think there is a difference. So I told you that I have uh, a son. His name's Nathaniel. He's a bit of a character. Um, I kind of think we're coming out of the worst of terrible twos, etc., but which lasted way longer than two. I don't know who lied to us about that, but... Um, uh, and he's now just turned four. This is him. This is uh, no, several months old. He looks a bit older now. But um, uh, hopefully you're the same in that you, your children, if you have them, uh, are really familiar with this little three-word phrase. And you hear it quite regularly, particularly whenever there's lots of emotions. And it's not, I love you, sadly. And it's not, let me help. That would be nice. It's, it's not fair. Have you ever heard your children say that? Not, I mean, that was, that was non-committal, so lucky you. I don't know where it comes from. He's so young, but yet he already has this sense 
that something doesn't feel right. It's usually whenever I say, no, you can't have another biscuit. You need to eat your dinner first, something like that. No, you've got to go to bed now because it's a school night, etc. It's not fair. Where does that come from? And of course, I think it's something that God has actually planted in each of us, this sense of fairness and justice. And, it, and it's there because of who God is. But the problem is that what you think of as unfair and what I think of as unfair or unjust are often different things. We use that term, it's not fair, for a whole range of things from uh, I didn't get um, the promotion that I wanted and someone else did, or whenever we see uh, footage of famine around the world, or for our children when they don't get the biscuit or whatever, we use it for this really wide range of things. And so, so somehow it, it starts, does it lose its meaning a little bit? So what are we going to do about that? And of course, as Christians, we've got to come back to God's word and to what he says, because we believe that that sense comes from who he is as a God of justice. And so in the Bible, um, there are two Hebrew words. We're going to unpack it a little bit. Two Hebrew words used, uh, to, which are then translated as we read them into justice. There's mishpat, which is the punishment of wrongdoing and giving people back their rights um, an emphasis on action. So uh, our justice system is often really built on this. You do something wrong that's against the law and you're punished for it. Mishpat. Siddiqah uh, then also is day-to-day -day living in which a person conducts all of their relationships with fairness, generosity and equity. So this is more a whole life thing that we can actually live justly in our whole lives. It doesn't just mean when someone does something wrong. It's much more than that. And it's actually about what happens between people, what happens in relationships. Um, and so we can't just like, if you wanted to become a more patient person, you can't go to a desert island by yourself and just pray and wish and hope, I want to be more patient. That would be nice. It would be lovely to become more patient without other people around. In fact, I think it would be a lot easier. I'd seem like a very patient person then. But of course, patience is developed whenever we're actually rubbing shoulders with other people, whenever we're inconvenienced, whenever people uh, don't see things the way that we see them. That's how we become more patient. And actually, it's the same with justice. Justice doesn't occur in a vacuum. It doesn't occur when we're by ourselves. It's what happens in day-to-day -day life between people, between God and people. And actually, as we look at it in the Bible, uh, we see that justice is about how power is used. It's to do with the exercise of power. And we're told in Isaiah, the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. And then for I, the Lord, love justice. So God is our standard. He's where we come back to to understand justice because he always uses his power perfectly. He always uses it right. And so there's a couple of ways that in IJM we have come to define justice. So justice, um, and this first definition is from a book called Good News About Injustice, which was written by our founder. I've got a couple of copies down at the back. But he says, justice is when power is exercised in accordance to God's standards of moral excellence. That's a pretty high standard to meet, isn't it? And then another one, which, is a, which we developed a little bit more recently, oh, thank you, is that justice is bringing right order and exerting life-giving power to protect the vulnerable. 
bringing right order and exerting life-giving power to protect the vulnerable. So again, justice is about how power is used. Can you identify with that? Because in your life, you have power. You might not have it in every area. You might not always feel like you have it, but you do have power. In other words, sometimes I use as influence because we can all, uh, I think, identify with the idea of having influence. So you might have that power influence over your children, over your community group, uh, over your church, over your classroom, whatever it is. Um, you have some power in some spheres of your life. And how are we using that? Are we using it to bring uh, or right order and to, get, and to exert life-giving power to protect the most vulnerable? And we'll see that through Scripture, that's what God does. He brings right order and he uses his life-giving power to protect the most vulnerable. So then we've got to think about it from the other perspective. What is injustice then? If that is what justice is, what is injustice? And we've got a definition for that as well. So it's the, the opposite when power and authority are misused. Can you think of a time when you feel that power and authority over you was misused or abused? Maybe you can even think of a time when you have misused power and authority over someone else. Oh, I'm about to kick it over. Sorry. Um, the Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes, um, it says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors. And so here we have power. Some people have it, and some people don't. Those who have it are misusing it. And so the result of that is people who are oppressed over here. And so the Bible's familiar with this concept of people abusing their power over others. And so when I say, and we use this definition for injustice, it is the abuse of power to take from others the good things that God intends for them, their life, liberty, their dignity, the fruits of their love and labor. We talk about slavery a lot in IGM, and I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit later on. But I think that definition, I can see it so clearly in uh, in situations of slavery where someone is working all the hours that God sends but they're not free they have no liberty they're not they're owned often by someone else and so their dignity is taken away they don't get to enjoy any of the money that's being made through their labor and um, and all of those things are what God wants for that person and it's taken away and so whenever we use the phrase it's not fair let's think about what that means is that true about the thing that we're saying at all? Is it actually unjust? Or have we got that sense maybe a little bit distorted along the way and have a think about that definition as well? Maybe if your children say it's not fair, if you start on this whole um, monologue and sermon about it, it might stop them from ever saying it again. So that might be a nice um, little uh, tactic to use. And we're going to have a look at the book of Ruth because... Um, I think there, we, we want to understand what this actually means in practice. Um, and I think there's some lovely things that we can learn from Ruth about this. We're going to read Ruth 2, 17 to 23. Um, I'm sure many of us are familiar with the story, um, but I'll give a little bit of context after I've read it, uh, in case not. So Ruth, well, let's give the context now. So in Ruth, the book of Ruth, it starts with a woman called Naomi. And Naomi... Um, was an, was an Israelite, uh, married an Israelite man, but they decided to leave because times were pretty tough in Israel. They decided to leave and go to Moab. Um, so quite a big deal for them to leave. Uh, Naomi and her husband is called Elimelech. So they moved to Moab 
Um, they have a family, a couple of sons, um, but then their, their sons get married. However, Elimelech then dies, um, which is obviously hard for Naomi, but then both of her sons also die. So here is this older woman left, bereft, in a country which isn't hers, um, with two daughters-in-law. daughters, daughters -in -law. And so she decides to go back to Israel. She's, she's feeling pretty bitter. She says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, and that means bitter. And she decides to go back to Israel. Um, and Ruth, one of her daughters-in-law, insists upon going back with her. The other one turns back. But Ruth and Naomi uh, travel on to Israel. But they're... they're, they're um, widows and uh, Ruth is a foreigner and Naomi is someone who has left Israel and so actually they're pretty low down in the pecking order uh, in Israel. They're women and so their identity and often their um, how they live, the, the physical means to live, money etc is all uh, through the meal through the meals of the family. Their importance is given to them through the meals of the family and so they're really nobodies. Their situation is pretty bleak in many ways, through the world's eyes and in this society at the time. So let's see what happens in Ruth chapter 2. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she'd been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law. There's lots we could say about this. Um, it's obviously in the context of a, of a bigger book. And so um, I know that we're just lifting a little bit out of it today. And of course, it's in this bigger context of what God is doing in Israel's story and, and the line of Israel and, and how he's coming to a point where Jesus comes. Um, so I know it's all part of this wider context, but we're going to pick a, little, a couple of things out of it to help us learn more about this God that we talk about every week and this God that we serve. Um, and the first thing we're going to think about is the idea of God as provider, God's provision in Ruth and Naomi's life, but then also in our lives. So verse 17 and 18, um, we're told that Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she'd gathered, and it amounts to about an ephah, and then she brings it back to Naomi. Um, one of the commentators that I read said that uh, an, one omer is about a tenth of an ephah. And when an omer is made into bread, it's about enough for one person for a day. And so what Ruth has brought back to Naomi is enough for them for five days. Um, and also we know that Boaz has told Ruth, we'll keep coming back until the end of the harvest. And so we see there that they're going to be provided for in the longer term as well. That was quite a lot for one woman to pick up. 
And so she did work pretty hard, Ruth worked hard that day. Um, but it also shows, and we see it earlier in the passage, that Boaz tells his workers to drop extra and not pick some stuff up so that Ruth can come along behind and pick up what they have dropped. Ruth gathered that day and it was enough for her and for Naomi. Their situation looked really dire, didn't it? These two widows from Moab, no men to, to win the bread, no men to give them status. And yet, here they are being provided for. God knew the situation. He saw what was going on. He saw them, even though they might feel forgotten, and he provided they're so low down in the pecking order, but God provides for them through Boaz. And we know this principle continues throughout God's word. Matthew 6 uh, tells us all about how God knows what we need and he provides for it. Just look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They don't worry, but yet God provides for what they need. Look at the flowers in the field, which tomorrow will be thrown into the fire. But God provides do we really believe that in our lives? Do we really believe that our heavenly father provides for us because he cares for us? And that's the kind of God that we serve, one who sees even the lowliest, even the most forgotten, the people that you and I may walk past, the people in places so far away that we've probably never even heard of them and we certainly never will go. God sees, he hears, and he provides that really encourages me as I think about the needs in the world, that God is a provider. But I think it's really important for us to consider um, a, deeper, a deeper theme through this and a deeper uh, part of God's character that we want to think about this morning. And that's this idea of justice. So verse 19 in this um, alludes to gleaning this process of gleaning and you you may know that that is where whenever there was a harvest time in Israel uh, and the workers were harvesting whatever it is that they harvested barley wheat not that familiar um, and there would be little bits that would naturally be dropped along the way and gleaning meant that people like Ruth and uh, maybe people who didn't have very much could come along behind and gather what was left and so that they could be provided for. And so Ruth and Naomi being provided for is not just because Boaz is kind and generous, although it does seem that he is very kind and very generous because he says, oh, drop extra for them. But actually, Boaz is responding in obedience to to something that God has set out in his laws. So whenever God was giving guidelines and laws for Israel and setting out the kind of society Israel was going to be, he put several things in place, which would mean that the lowest of the low would be provided for. So this practice of gleaning is really important. The practice of jubilee, of returning to people what they originally owned and, and paying off all debts, um, those were things that God put in place and they reflect his character. This deep sense of justice 
In fact, it does, we're not told that God has a sense of justice. We're told that he is just, that he embodies that. And so out of that character flows practices like gleaning and jubilee. Uh, there's a, a writer, a church leader called Tim Chester, and he talks about these laws that God put in place. And he says that they had the effect of safeguarding both the needs and the dignity of the poor. Psalm 146, uh, 7-9 tells us, He, which is God, he upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. We see there different groupings uh, called out. The oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. Uh, and there's a recurring theme through God's word where uh, there are different groupings picked out, often the poor, widows, orphans, and foreigners. And some people have come to know this as the quartet of the vulnerable. Tim Chester, in his book, Good News to the Poor, says, our understanding of poverty is fundamentally related to our understanding of God. It is a question of the kind of God that we worship. And so if we think that, well, people are poor because they don't work hard, there's something faulty in our understanding of God which leads us to that conclusion. So that's a bit of a challenging thing to think about. In fact, there's so much of this sort of thing in the Bible where these groupings are called out that some people say that God is biased to the poor. I wonder what you think of that phrase. It causes me a little bit, you know, to stop and to have a think. Do I really think that? But doesn't God love everybody? Didn't he come to save everyone, rich or poor? So what does that mean? And my good friend Tim Chester has something to say on that as well. So he says, it is not that God is prejudiced in some way, still less that the poor are more deserving because of their poverty. Rather, because God is a God of justice, God opposes those who per perpetuate injustice and he sides with the victims of oppression. So whenever we say that God is biased to the poor, we don't mean that he loves poor people more than he loves rich people. And we don't mean that they deserve more because they are poor. But whenever there is injustice, the oppressed and the oppressors, God is on the side of the oppressed because he is just. In situations of exploitation, it is the cause of the oppressed that God upholds. In verse 22 of uh, Ruth 2, we see Naomi uh, cautioning Ruth. And she says, just finding it, verse 22, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. And when I read this, it really struck me because isn't the law of gleaning for all of Israel? I mean, so the law's there. Do they not all follow it? Is Naomi saying that not everyone is going to maybe let you glean in their field? And actually even worse, it sounds like Naomi is saying, in some fields, you'd better watch out because someone might take advantage of you. 
So it turns out that even though God has laid down this law of gleaning, not everybody follows it. Shocking? Not really, because we live in the real world and we're very familiar with what people are capable of. And what we find in IJM is that where there is someone who is poor, often leading to vulnerability, there's almost always someone else willing to take advantage of that vulnerability for their own gain. That's not surprising because we read the news and we know what people can do to other people. There's always people willing to take advantage. Psalm 10, I'm not going to take the time to read it this morning, but um, you should have a look at it. Um, it's an awkward one when you're invited to a women's group and people think you're going to talk about something nice and then you get up and read Psalm 10. It's all about wicked men or wicked, wicked people or the wicked man. And it tells us all that he is capable of, of ambushing the weak, the innocent, of murdering and lying and being arrogant. God doesn't care. God doesn't see what, I'll do, what I do. I'll always get away with it. And it comforts me in a way to know that the Bible is so realistic about people and so clear about the mess that we can, we can get ourselves and other people in. And so Naomi's caution is all too, uh, it's, it's appropriate, isn't it, for Ruth? You've got to be careful because when you go into a field as a woman, a widow, who is poor, who's desperately in need, there might be people willing to take advantage of that. And so God uh, doesn't put these laws in place simply to provide for those who are poor. He puts these laws in place also to protect people because poverty often leads to vulnerability, as I've said. So God is a provider, but he's also a protector. That is who he is. Isn't that exciting this morning that we gather here to worship and to serve a God who wants to provide and who wants to protect the most vulnerable? There's a, a writer called Nicholas Wolterstorff. He is a, a theologian and philosopher, and he talks about the problem of injustice. Well, one of the problems with it is that it is not equally distributed in the world. The poor, due to their situation and vulnerability, are often treated badly and exploited more than others. And so that's why when we talk about injustice, we have to talk about people who are poor because injustice is not distributed equally in our world. In IJM, I mean, justice is our middle name, literally. So I talk about it all the time and it can feel a little bit like it loses meaning at times. And so we've got to think about real people and real situations to get a handle on that. And as I said at the beginning or near the start, um, I think that when we talk about injustice being the abuse of power to take away from people the good things that God has for them. Uh, and then when I think about situations of slavery, uh, I see the truth of that definition in those stories. As I said, there are 40 million people in the world um, who are enslaved. Many of them are children which means that children are in brothels and sweatshops and factories when they should be in schools and families and playgrounds. When we talk about modern slavery, we might think about William Wilberforce and the transatlantic slave trade. But of course, things look slightly different today. So slavery can be whole families exploited through a system of debt in India, for example, I don't know if those of you who have travelled to India have ever uh, come across this, but people need to borrow money for medical fees or a family wedding. So they borrow from a money lender, can't pay it back. That's oh, okay, why don't you come and work for me? 
to pay off your debts. In fact, bring your whole family and you'll work the debt off quicker. You, we'll, we'll, we'll give you a place to live. We'll give you the tools that you need. Um, your children can go to school. It's really nearby. But it's lies. Um, they come to do the work. And the interest rate is set so extortionately high that the debt just keeps accruing. Oh, but you're living on our compound, and so you now owe us rent on top of the original debts. So we'll add that on. You're using our tools. You're eating our food. We paid for your train journey. We'll add all those things on. So the debt just keeps accruing. I've heard stories of people who will work for 10 years to pay off a debt of £10 sterling. People who are born into a life of debt bondage because of the debt of a parent or a grandparent. In reality, they have paid that debt many times over, but they're told, you still owe us money. You still owe us money. It's illegal in India, but it's, it keeps occurring. It could be children in the fishing industry in Ghana, for example. And so we discovered this several years ago where fishermen were going out into villages um, around Lake Volta, uh, quite, maybe several hours away from the lake, saying, we'll give your family money uh, if you let your son come and work for us. We'll teach him a trade. We'll look after him. He can even go to school. Uh, and so parents who don't have much were saying, yeah, that sounds like a good solution for my family. I have many mouths to feed. Um, and the boys were being taken to the lake. But again, school, nope. Enough food, not always. Mistreatment, yeah. Uh, diving into dark waters to untangle nets when they can't even swim. Most of the kids we meet know someone who has drowned on the lake. But it also could be uh, young girls desperate for a new life or, or wanting to help their family out or wanting to go to the big city where they think all their dreams will come true. And so someone says, oh, well, I know of a job in a restaurant or a hotel or whatever. And again, it's tricks, it's lies, it's deceit. A girl could be sold into a brothel. I don't want to do this. I didn't sign up for this. Oh, but we paid for you. And until you can pay us back what you owe, you will do what we're asking of you. And then for us in IJM, we have found this uh, kind of growing form of what we call cyber sex trafficking, where young kids are being put online in the Philippines in front of cameras. They're being abused or they're being forced to abuse each other. And that footage is um, sent out around the world. People pay to watch it. People pay to view it. It's really dark stuff. Um, but we're saying that it's growing because it's so easy to get internet connection and a webcam. Uh, English is widely spoken in the Philippines. They can connect with customers all over the world. And so the reality of these things is pretty dark, isn't it? Um, but we're also seeing in IJM that this God of provision and protection is at work and he is bigger. Uh, Kofi was a young boy in Ghana. Uh, he was eight when his a man came to speak to his family and say, we'll take Kofi, he'll get a good job. Um, he was eight at that point, and so for the next two years, he worked on the lake, uh, feeling scared, feeling lonely, uh, without hope. And we're going to watch um, a short video of him. He was rescued by IJM and, and, and local police. Um, he was brought to live in an aftercare shelter where he's able to start healing. And we're just going to watch a short video about that now. Okay. I'm afraid when I was in the lake. Show me 
could be Initiate the heart within me Till it opens properly Slow down Start again from the beginning I can't keep my head from spinning out of control Is this what being vulnerable feels like? And I'll try, try, try to breathe Till it turns to muscle memory I'm only steady on my knees One day I'll stand on my own two feet And I'll run the risk Of being intimate with brokenness Through this magnifying glass I see a thousand fingerprints On the surface So our God is a God who provides and who protects, and he wants to use us to be part of that. Um, I find that video quite moving. Um, I know my time is severely running out, I'm sorry. Um, I will stop soon. So Cassie, um, I just want to talk a little bit about Cassie because I think it shows us something else that God wants to do. So Cassie was one of those girls in the Philippines whose family was lied to. Yes, come with me. I'll look after Cassie in Manila. Uh, she'll get all the opportunities. And she moved to Manila with this older man who was supposed to protect her and who abused her and many other girls. Um, and we did, she was, she was hopeless. She was angry and um, she wanted to kill herself. She wanted to kill the man who was hurting her. Um, but we found her and she was brought to freedom. She went into an aftercare home where she started counselling and started to put her life back together again. And this next picture of Cassie is really important because Cassie wasn't just brought to a place where she could just about cope with life, where she... Uh, could kind of get back to a neutral place or where she was before. God's actually done so much more than that. This is Cassie standing in front of thousands of people 
in the States at a conference telling them her story of what happened to her and asking them to be part of the fight against slavery. And she is saying, say it with me, we will fight to end slavery. We will fight. That is what God has done in her life. Isn't that so cool? So God doesn't just bring us or other people back to a neutral place where we're just about okay. He brings us to a place of fullness, to a place of deep restoration where we can do more than we ever would have imagined before. And I love that um, about God. And so what does this all mean for us in a day-to-day basis? Because I go to churches all over and I tell people sad stories where they feel their hearts get tugged at and they think, gosh, that's terrible. What can I do? And it's really hard to figure out what to do, isn't it? Because you live in Dungannon and you don't live in the Philippines or India or whatever. So what really can our lives, what really can we do in response? And it is tricky, but don't let that put you off. Don't let the fact that it is difficult mean that you don't try. Um, I have a friend called Mary who, she's in her 60s. Her husband uh, is uh, just retired as a bishop in the Church of Ireland. She told me that she stopped watching the news a good few years ago. Stop watching it. It's too difficult. It's too painful. I don't know what to do about all of that that I see, so I stopped watching it. But she did pray, God, break my heart for something that breaks yours. For a long time, there didn't seem to be anything. God wasn't doing anything. And... not breaking her heart, but she was at a conference and she heard about children being exploited in Cambodia and her heart broken too. And she wept and she wept. What's she going to do about that? And someone was praying for her and they said, Mary, just do the next thing. Just do the next thing. She and I have a mutual friend who knew I was going on a trip to Cambodia. And so Mary came on that trip. She learned all about the issues. But still, she lives in Londonderry. What's she going to do about exploitation in Cambodia but that thought came back Mary just do the next thing and so she signed up as a monthly donor a freedom partner with IJM Mary just do the next thing she filled a jar with prayer requests and every day for a year she took out a prayer request and prayed for the work of IJM Mary just do the next thing as the bishop's wife she gets invited to speak in front of groups and so she uses that to talk about slavery and exploitation just do the next thing So that's what I'd say this morning. Just do the next thing. And that could be getting someone to pray for you, that that God shows you the way forward. That could be um, deciding to become a prayer partner with IJM or a freedom partner, someone who gives monthly, which allows us to do the work that we're doing around the world. It could be volunteering with the likes of us or even in your own compassion ministries. What is your next thing? Don't be afraid to ask God to let you know what that is. So I'll finish there. I hope this morning that you feel challenged about some of what is going on in the world. It is dark and difficult, um, but I also hope you feel really encouraged that God is bigger than all of those things. And I hope you feel uh, a greater sense of conviction about this biblical justice. Our God is just and he calls us to be just. He calls us to be people who provide and protect the most vulnerable. And then I hope that you feel uh, determined to ask God what your next thing is, even though it's a little bit scary. What is our next thing? I believe I'm handing over to someone. I'm not sure who. There we go. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Do come and chat to me down at the back later on. Thank you so much, Ruth.
And thank you for all the amazing work you're doing there with, with IGM as well. That's great. Um, so could I encourage you just to close up? We will have uh, a few people at either side for prayer ministry. If you want prayer for anything um, before you go this week, and I would really encourage you, we can all do with prayer for something. So be bold and come up and 